We're looking tonight at Proverbs 26, verses 1 to 12. You sometimes approach the book of Proverbs believing that they're just a bunch of disjointed sayings that are randomly grouped together. And for some of them, that's, that's true. But that is not the case with verses 1 to 12 here in Proverbs 26. As we work our way through the text this evening, you're going to see that the sage is making a very devastating critique of those individuals who are wise in their own eyes. So um, we'll read the passage and then we'll pray and we will get to work. Proverbs 26, 1 to 12. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this word to us tonight. We thank you for the sages and the wise men of old who saw fit to, through your spirit, to write these Proverbs down for us, Lord, to teach us wisdom. And so as we approach this book of Proverbs this evening, Lord, we pray, God, that above all, we would not think ourselves wise in our own eyes, that we would humble ourselves before your word and Hear what it is that your Spirit is trying to say to us. Lord, help us to be a people that are not just interested in learning, but are interested in being taught by you. Not just interested in facts and figures, historical dates and events, things that have happened. Lord, help us to be a people who are ready to be reproved by you. We pray you do this by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. From all outward appearances, you would think that it was a hopeless situation. But love compelled the Apostle Paul to speak. We find Paul in Jerusalem during the final course of his ministry in Acts. uh, He's attempting to give his testimony, to share the gospel with the Jews. And he's come to Jerusalem one final time. And the Jews realize that this is the man who has been challenging their belief system, preaching the gospel all throughout the Mediterranean world at that time. He's been converting believers, Jewish believers, to the Christian heresy as they see it. And they see him in the temple and they immediately conspire to arrest this man. And ideally what they'd like to do is they'd like to kill him in the form of a mob beating. A Roman tribune intercedes in Acts chapter 22 and breaks off the savage beating and is leading Paul away in chains when Paul says, I'd like to say something. And of course, the unruly mob that is pursuing him, that is chasing him, they're eager to listen to see what he has to say. 
And he begins to share his conversion story. And again, they're willing to go along for a a season. They're willing to listen. And as he begins to share his conversion story, he comes to the part where he is dialoguing with the Father about being a witness to the nation of Israel. And he argues with the Father, and he says, Lord, these people know that it was I who stood by approving of the execution of your servant Stephen, the first martyr. And I looked over their garments while they were stoning him. And then Paul makes this statement to the crowd. They've heard all of that, and undoubtedly many that were in that crowd were there when Stephen was martyred. And he makes this statement, But the Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. And Acts chapter 22 says, At this word, immediately they erupted in an outcry and said, Away with this man. He deserves to die. What infuriated them was not his continuing to talk about Jesus or his continuing to talk about the gospel. They were willing to listen for a season to these things. Of course, that that did irk them. But what just set them off was the notion that the God of Israel would take one of the leading scholars, Paul, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, and would send him to the Gentiles. Israel is a Jewish nation. Uh, The Jewish nation is a nation of learning. They're a religious nation. They know their Bible. They know the Torah. They know the Old Testament. And they're confident that they're the chosen people. They're confident that God desires them, that God wants to have a relationship with them. And this influences their thinking so much so that the idea that God might actually raise up a messenger to take the gospel to the Gentiles, well, that's just too rich. And so at that word, they explode with uncontrolled rage, away with this man. What is interesting about these people gathered together in the temple compound, they are well-educated. They know their scriptures. They're eager for learning, but they're not interested in being reproved or taught by the Lord. In a sense, they are the ultimate fools, which is what Proverbs 26 is teaching us about. Proverbs 26 talks about the danger of fools. The danger that fools present to those around them, but ultimately the danger that fools themselves are facing. The chapter begins in verses 1 to 3. You need to understand the book of Proverbs is going to use a series of metaphors, analogies, to describe the indescribable. When we take somebody like a fool and we try to describe him or to depict him to you, undoubtedly most of us, when we stop to think of fools, we have in our mind an idea of what a fool is or what a fool looks like. But the Proverbs are going to use a series of metaphors. They're going to take things that we can observe in nature and all around us to help draw the picture of what exactly a fool looks like. And so the sage is going to introduce us to this topic here in verses 1 to 3. He makes three comparisons in verses 1, 2, and 3. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Verse 2, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Now, as we begin to look at these first three verses, they're going to serve as an introduction for what's going to follow in verses 
Well, the verses that follow, from verse 4 on down to 12. This is an introduction. The first thing that he says is snow in harvest, or snow in summertime. Or the other part of that is um, snow in summer or rain in harvest, I beg your pardon, snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. You don't want to have it raining when you're trying to bring in the harvest, and at the same time, you don't want snow in the summertime. Snow only comes in the wintertime. So he's talking about the chaos of the seasons. In the same way that you don't want snow coming in the middle of the summer, at the same time you don't want rain hitting your harvest, you don't want to honor a fool. The second verse, verse 2, says, Like a sparrow in its splitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. On first reading, it doesn't seem to have any connection with what has just preceded it. We'll come back to that. Verse 3 forms an inclusio. The first verse talks about fool. The third verse talks about fool. A whip for a horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the backs of fools. Verse 1 talks about the fact that we should not honor a fool, that it's not appropriate, that it's not fitting. Verse 3 says what we should do with a fool, in not-so-polite terms, I suppose, is beat him. The same way we put bits in a mouth, in the mouth of a horse, the same way that we try to guide donkeys, fools are not worthy of honor, as it says in verse 1, what they are worthy of is being beaten. In between these two verses, verse 1 and verse 3, comes verse 2, which says, a curse that is causeless does not alight. And it compares it to two types of birds, a sparrow and a swallow. And both of these birds, if you've ever watched them for any length of time, they're the types of birds that will just flitter back and forth, flutter around. They can't seem to make up their mind where they want to land. There's a ton of energy expended in the beating of their wings to no real purpose. They just seem to be back and forth all over the sky with no real direction, just going back and forth. And the scriptures are saying, when you try to curse someone, Apart from a legitimate cause, it's just a bunch of wasted energy the way that these birds are flying back and forth in the sky with no real destination. Anytime we would utter a curse, anytime that we would suggest of someone that they stand in the judgment of God, we could never make that suggestion apart from a knowledge of what it is that God condemns. Only God fulfills curses. And so if anyone is to suggest that anyone is cursed by God, he would have to know the mind of God and know the will of God, know the heart of God, and know the person whom he presumes to be pronouncing a curse upon. Anything less than that is just wasted energy. So we take these three verses together, verses 1, 2, and 3. It starts off with honor. It ends with beating the fool. And in the middle, it says when it comes to honor or when it comes to cursing, to sort of flip the equation from honor found in verse 1. When it comes to honor or when it comes to cursing, these things have to be done with a view to what it is that God honors or what it is that God curses. Fools are the first thing we're talking about. The second thing we're talking about here is honor. Now before we work our way through this text, we need to make sure we have biblical definitions of these terms. Sometimes when we read a passage like this, we're more inclined to take our modern-day definitions and to read them into the Scripture rather than allowing the Scripture to speak for itself. So before we go any further, we need to say exactly, we need to ask two questions. Number one, what exactly in God's eyes, in the Bible's eyes, what is a fool? Number two, 
in God's eyes, in the Bible's eyes, what is honor? I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 14. Go to Luke chapter 14, and I want to show you something. Jesus tells a parable. We're going to be looking at verse 7, Luke 14, 7. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 14, verse 7. And this parable shows us what honor is. He says, he told a parable to those who were invited, they're they're at a a banquet, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And he said to them, verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Okay, so he's clearly touching on this concept of honor. He says, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Verse 10, here's what you ought to do instead. When you are invited to a wedding banquet, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored, okay, you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In the context of the first century, the idea of honor, the way that we typically think about it, is it's my personal respect, it's my personal reputation. And we tend to think of honor as something that we just inherently possess, And we're not far off. Honor is the reputation that we have, but honor, properly understood, at least from the Bible's perspective, can only be bestowed upon you by others. It isn't so much your reputation. It isn't so much what you think about yourself. From the Bible's perspective, honor is the exalted status that people give you. Jesus tells this parable. Uh, He gives this proverb, in a sense, in Luke 14. When you go to a wedding banquet, don't sit at the honored seats, at the lowest seat, which means that within Jewish society, in some sense, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure how or in, in how this would work or what it would look like, but in some sense, you had the good seats at a banquet, and when you sat in those seats, everybody knew that the host of the banquet would only reserve those seats for people that he, the host of the banquet, wanted to honor. So again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what it would look like, but... Uh, If you're going to throw a party, you're going to have all your friends come. You're going to have some of your friends that you wish to bestow honor upon. And you're going to have some of your other friends that you're just going to have them come along. And you want these guys whom you've just invited along to really recognize these other guys whom you are going to honor. In that sense, honor isn't just about a reputation. Honor is something that has to be conferred upon us. And in what sense does this make any difference? To be honored is to be awarded influence over others. When you honor someone, you're saying to everyone else, this is a person that I admire, this is a person that I respect, in the hopes that those individuals will share your admiration of this individual. So the Proverbs are saying, It's not appropriate to honor a fool. Why? To give a foolish person honor is to give them a position of influence over others. Well, why would that be such a bad thing? Well, that brings us to our next question. What exactly is a fool? 
I want you to turn all the way back to Proverbs. I want you to look in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The sages who are compiling this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they understood that they were going to spend a great deal of the book talking about wisdom and foolishness. And so, of course, they wanted to define their terms. From the outset, they're going to tell you exactly what a fool is. In Proverbs 1.7, it makes a statement, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To fear God, that's where knowledge begins. And here's the definition of a fool. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So a fool is an individual who is ignorant. Ignorant because they just don't care to learn. They don't care to grow in wisdom. They don't care to be instructed. So as we look at the introduction here to this whole section, the book of Proverbs is saying to us here in chapter 26, we do not honor fools because that would be to give them influence over others, and that's a dangerous thing. Because a fool is someone who does not have any fear for the Lord and doesn't want to grow in his wisdom of the Lord. So why would you want anyone looking up to an individual like that? It gets worse. Look at the next verse, chapter 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Is this a contradiction in back-to-back -back verses? Is the Bible not able to make up its mind with how it is that we're supposed to be approaching our interaction with fools? Did the sages of old, who spent so much time meticulously arranging the Proverbs, carefully weighing them and balancing them and putting them together, did it just sort of escape their attention that they put two seemingly opposite things right next to each other? Which is it? Do we engage a fool or do we not engage a fool? Do we answer a fool or do we not answer a fool? That's the whole point of these two verses, these two Proverbs put back together. The sages are not giving us definitive answer on whether or not we should talk to fools or answer fools or not answer fools. They're trying to show you attention. Now, in the years following 9-11, there were a, a bunch of individuals who came out with this crazy theory that 19 terrorists from Saudi Arabia did not actually hijack these two planes and crash them into the trade, the Twin Towers on 9-11. That really, the towers were destroyed by the American government. It was an inside job. Uh, that's the theory that is out there. And I was unfortunate enough one day to run into one of these guys and strike up a conversation. And he began to try to persuade me that really... This whole war on terrorism was really nothing more than an elaborate ruse by the American government to drum up business for the war industry, to manufacture weapons and, and things of this nature to kind of get our economy going. Now, do you answer him? Do you ask him? What makes you think this? Or do you just smile your head and say yes and change the subject quickly? What do you do in that situation? And ironically enough, I've tried it both ways with, with these guys. Okay, I'm game. You've got me. Tell me, what is the evidence? What do you have that you can definitively point to? What can you show me that proves that really it was the Bush administration that brought down the Twin Towers? To which they very cleverly say, well, nothing. Nothing. 
Of course. It's a clever cover-up. That's the whole idea. If you knew definitively that the Bush administration brought down the Twin Towers, then of course you wouldn't support this whole war on terror. So the absence of evidence becomes evidence itself. Okay? So you come to this realization where you realize you can't possibly argue with these people. Answer not a fool, lest he look wise in his own eyes. Answer a fool, lest you become like him yourself. So take the other option. Say you, say, say you don't respond. Okay? You think that the Bush administration secretly plotted to destroy the towers. Fine. You say nothing. You change the subject. Do you know what they say then? See? Pastor Joshua knows it's true too. He can't argue against it. You can't win whether you agree or argue with them or whether you choose not to argue. It doesn't matter. Both responses can be used either way. That's what the sages are getting here in Proverbs verses, chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. It makes a statement. He says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So don't engage in those conversations lest you get dragged into the silliness. Verse 5, answer a fool. You better answer a fool according to his folly, lest he think he's wise in his own eyes. So say something to him, or else he'll just think he's right if you just ignore him and walk away. But don't say anything to him lest you get dragged into the madness. What, what the sages are saying here, it doesn't matter whether you have two different conversations with the same person. It doesn't matter. That's the nature of a fool. They're totally unpredictable. They're in love with their own thoughts on things. They can't be reasoned with. They can't be argued with. Anything you might say, they will twist it and contort it to whatever their own view, their own perspective is. So what the sages are saying here is it doesn't matter whether you answer them or whether you don't answer them. They are totally unreliable, illogical, and unpredictable. Now most of us, when we encounter these individuals, we just sort of chuckle to ourselves and we think, well, okay, they're kind of foolish, but at the end of the day, they're just, you know, it's like your crazy uncle. It's just He's just this crazy person that you understand he's foolish, and, but at the end of the day, he's perfectly harmless. That's where we need to be very careful. See, what's going to come next is a description of anything but harmless. Look at verse 6. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb. Oh, I've lost my place. Is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You know what the Proverbs are saying here? that fools are anything but harmless, that there actually is a real danger to them, which goes back to the initial point that you don't give honor or recognition or any kind of status to a fool because that would harm others if they were to have influence over others. They are not harmless. They are dangerous. In fact, these proverbs come so quickly together, one right after another. It's quick staccato, bam, 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 bam. It kind of reminds me of the Rapid-fire shots of a machine gun. It's almost as if the sage is saying to us, you want to know how dangerous a fool is? It's like this. Bam, 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 bam. That's how dangerous a fool is. One 
stinging rebuke right after the other, depicting their danger. It's as though what the sage is trying to say is the same way that you take precaution with your hunting rifle, not just leave it laying around loaded. You need to take extreme precaution with fools. The wise person should not trust fools, verse 6, because fools don't know wisdom. They don't understand proverb. They don't understand how to use a proverb. They're not interested in learning wisdom. They're not interested in applying wisdom. So you should not trust a fool. The wise person should not give any social standing or honor to a fool because that would give the fool influence over others. Verse 8. And that is like giving a gun to a child. It uses this picture in the next verse about a thorn in the hand of a drunk man. In other words, it's like saying, it's like taking a bad situation, a drunk man, and making it worse. If you look back, it makes the statement in verse 9, like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So don't try to instruct them because it's just taking a bad situation and making it worse. Verse 10, the sage makes a statement, it's like an archer who wounds, like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or, or a drunkard. And so verse 10 would tell us that we would be wise to not give meaningful employment, to not come to rely upon someone who's extremely foolish because to give meaningful employment or to put a fool in a position where we might need to rely upon them, to need them, it's like the same thing as just shooting arrows randomly at any passerby. Somebody's going to get hurt. A fool is not reliable. And lastly, in verse 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The wise person should, positively speaking, all the previous Proverbs have been negative, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Positively speaking, the wise person should regard a fool as loathsome because they repeat the same mistakes over and over again. That's a very graphic picture that is used. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So from verses 6 to 11, bam, 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 over and over again. The fool is not harmless. The fool is dangerous which makes what he's about to say in verse 12 even more devastating. Look at what he says. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now that is a powerful piece of literature right there. He's just taken all this time to say, don't trust fools, don't honor fools, don't have anything to do with fools, don't look at fools, just get away from fools. They're very dangerous. Oh, by the way, you see a person who's wise in his own eyes? Fools are better off than that person. What is the sage saying here in Proverbs when he says, a person who is wise in his own eyes? You see, it's inevitably, no matter how long you chew on this, no matter how long you meditate on it, you can't escape the fact that what the sage is saying is wisdom requires that you look 
to someone or something outside of yourself. A fool is a dangerous person, but there's still hope for a fool. At least more hope than a person who evaluates his own knowledge, his own understanding, his own view on life within himself. And see, a fool, according to Proverbs 1.7, just despises wisdom and instruction. He's got that against him. But the self-wise man, he's convinced that he's right. Not only does he despise wisdom or instruction, but he's convinced that whatever his own thoughts or his own opinion is, that is wisdom. It says in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to the man who is wise in his own eyes. God is saying to us, no matter how smart you might be, no matter how much education you might have, no matter how intelligent you might genuinely be, you still need to turn to the Lord for instruction, for wisdom. Only God can make any of us truly wise. And the corollary is, if any of us are going to escape foolishness, the only person who can actually help us to escape it is the Lord. It's not so much a matter of learning. We can all learn. Fools are capable of learning. But the devastating critique of this passage is, learning isn't the issue. It's a willingness to be taught by the Lord himself. Have you ever stopped to think, what exactly is happening at Bible study? From an outsider's perspective, what exactly does a worship service look like on a Sunday morning? Have you ever tried to put your shoe, yourself into the shoes of an unbeliever? Somebody just comes in off the street, they have no church background, they have no exposure to any of the things that we typically do in the Christian life. They just randomly show up to a life group, they randomly show up to a Sunday evening worship service, they come here. Have you ever thought what this might look like to them? I have. It might look a little something like this, if I were to describe it from an outsider's perspective. It's a bunch of people who are coming together, singing some songs. Maybe they're happy. Maybe they're not happy. Maybe some are happy. Maybe some are rather dour. And then some guy stands up and he gives a feel-good message or perhaps a historical lesson. Have you ever really stopped to think about it? What does Bible study look like? It's looking into an old, 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 more or less history book filled with wise sayings, filled with weird encounters and various miracles. At the end of the day, what's really different between what we're doing here and what they might do in, say, a history class up at TRU? Here's the difference. We're not just talking about things that happened thousands of years ago. At least we better not be. We're not just looking to gain a bunch of facts and figures from thousands of years ago. At least we'd better not be. Pastor Al touched on it this morning in his message. When we come to the Word of God, we can still approach it in a very foolish manner, just like the nation of Israel. When we come to the Word of God, it can't just be some really interesting things with some cool facts and figures and dates and stuff that happened. It has to be that the Lord is coming to us in that moment. 
And he's trying to reprove us. And see, when we come to the Scriptures, if we're to be wise, it can't just be learning. There has to be a humble heart that says, whatever is about to be said, whatever text is about to be read, whatever is about to happen here, this is speaking to me. There has to be an interest in preparing our heart to be humble before the Lord. He's going to say something. And if we accept that we're all sinful, fallen men and women, and we've got to be open to the idea that sometimes when he speaks, it might sting a little bit. It might hurt just a little bit. And that's a good thing. Because if it never stings, if it never hurts, if it always just looks like us learning a bunch of history facts, going to history class, then we might be very foolish in our approach to our relationship with the Father. I'm going to, time is getting away from me, but I want to make one comment this evening. There's something that I have observed. It's becoming more and more popular in evangelical Christianity. Fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, this would never have been an issue, but it's becoming more and more of an issue today. In the last year, I have personally witnessed to two different ladies and led two different ladies to faith in the Lord. The Lord was already drawing them. They were already interested in beginning a personal relationship with Jesus. But the thing that held them back was this idea of evolution. That somehow God wasn't necessary because evolution explained everything. All that is around us, all that we are, it just sort of came about in some cosmic big bang. And over the course of billions and millions of years, we just sort of came to be through natural processes of what Darwin referred to as natural selection. And when I sat down with both of these individuals, and they both came to faith fairly quickly, it wasn't any sort of wisdom on my part. It was that the Lord was already working in their heart. But when I sat down with both of them, I said, tell me, where is the incontrovertible evidence that this is actually how it is? And both of them said to me, well, this is what I have heard even amongst Christians. The argument is that God may have created us, but not directly. That God somehow used evolution to bring us about. And when I go to Genesis chapter 1 and I read about the six days of creation and God resting on the seventh day and creating an Adam and an Eve and all this sort of stuff, I have a hard time believing that the book is true when I hear Christians saying, well, it's all symbolic and metaphorical. And really, there is a lot of substance to the idea of evolution. And even really, according to the scientists, evolution is what actually happened to bring us to this place. But we just sort of take it on faith that God is and that Jesus loves us and that he died on the cross for our sins. There's a major problem with this. If Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 
are somehow symbolic and metaphorical. If God did not actually create us in six days, and by day I mean a 24-hour period of time, it makes the statement very explicitly morning and evening, the first day, morning and evening, the second day, and so on. If we can't trust him in Genesis 1, then how could we trust him in Romans 5? I'm quoting here from Dr. Grudem. Dr. Grudem, in a foreword to a book entitled Should Christians Embrace Evolution, offers eight objections to the idea that Christians should somehow seek to harmonize their faith with modern science, specifically the idea of evolution. Objection number one, to hold to evolution as a Christian would mean that the Christian would have to accept, number one, Adam and Eve were not the first human beings, but they were just two Neolithic farmers among about 10 million or so other human beings on earth at that time, and God just arbitrarily chose to reveal himself to them in a personal way. It would mean that the Christian would, number two, have to accept that those other human beings had already been seeking to worship or serve God or gods in some other way, in some flawed way. It would mean, number three, that Adam was not specifically formed by God from, quote, the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7, but he had two human parents. It would mean, number four, Eve was not directly made by God out of a rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, direct quote, Genesis 2-22, but that somehow she also had two parents. Number five, it would mean that human beings both then and now are not descended from Adam and Eve. Some humans today are perhaps descended from Adam and Eve, but many more are not. Number six, Adam and Eve's sin wasn't the first sin. Number seven, human physical death had been occurring for thousands of years before Adam and Eve sinned. And it was just a part of the way that all living things had always existed. Number eight, God did not impose any alteration on the world when he cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. And I agree with all eight of those points. If we are to somehow seek to harmonize our faith with the Lord who speaks through the Bible, with the theories and the tenets of modern science, these two always clash. And one must always be given priority over the other. And there are many Christian scientists out there who I believe genuinely are believers who do love the Lord. The problem is that they're looking at science and they're coming to these hard data points, at least they think they're hard data points, and they're accepting those as infallibly true and then trying to find a way to take Scripture and to try and squeeze it into all of this. For example, radiocarbon dating suggests that the earth is billions of years old. Well, the Bible gives an indication that it's somewhere between six to 8,000 years old based on genealogies. Which is it? It doesn't seem like a very hard problem to me. Radiocarbon dating, all the different the geological record, all of the different methods that they might employ to suggest that the earth is millions or billions of years old, it doesn't seem like a stretch to suggest that maybe God created the earth six to 8,000 years ago with an apparent age that it was millions and billions of years old. This is what I want to suggest to you. When Adam was created, how old was he the second after he was created? Well, he would be one second old. But how old did he appear to be? Well, we don't really know. Somewhere between 18 to 35. In a short period of time, God's going to make him a wife. So we assume he's 
fully physically and emotionally matured. For some of us, that's 18. For others of us, that's 35. The point being that when God made Adam and Eve, they were already fully matured, even though they weren't but a second or a couple of minutes or a couple of moments old in actuality. He created them with an inherent age. So it doesn't seem like a very difficult objection to me if we accept, and and, excuse me, I need to clarify this, I don't accept most of that science. I don't. But when I encounter Christian scientists interacting with data that they hold to be valid, and then trying to take the Bible and to take the theology clearly taught in Genesis 1 and 2 and somehow try to squeeze that into their data points. Number one, we would never ask a scientist to approach his scientific tests that way, the way that they're asking theologians to approach their Bible. But number two, there's really no need for any contradiction. If we are to be wise in our own eyes, if we're to accept that all of our scientific tests and all of our dates and all of our measurements are infallibly accurate, if we're right, then perhaps the Bible must be wrong. But you see, there's a problem. The Bible says people who are wise in their own eyes are in a very, very dark place. Fools. He calls them foolish. With both of these ladies, they wanted to be Christian. But they had heard from Christians that the book was flawed, that science was true. And I just asked both of them, you hear one thing here, you hear one thing there. Where actually is your proof? Have you actually looked at this data for yourself? Have you actually approached any of it with a critical eye? Have you looked at the resurrection of Christ? Have you looked at the Word of God? Have you approached it with a critical eye? And which one holds up to the scrutiny? I submit to you, my brothers and sisters, the Bible is true in every regard. And a lot of really, a lot of really, I call them smart people. The Bible will call them foolish people. A lot of individuals with high IQs, let's put it that way have tried to disprove the book. But they fall short every time. Will we be wise in our own eyes? Or will we allow the wisdom of God's Word to instruct us, to reprove us? Will we hope in what He says? Or will we hope in ourselves? There is more hope for a fool than for a man who is wise in his own eyes. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us in Proverbs. Lord, we we know that as your church, sometimes in our walk with you, we can approach it almost from a purely academic perspective where we're always learning the scriptures but never getting any wiser for it. We're in danger of sometimes becoming like the nation of Israel, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we draw near to you, to worship you, to learn from you, that we would humble ourselves knowing that you truly do speak through your word. 
And I pray, God, that none of us would ever take a pragmatic approach to the Scriptures, that we would never be reassured of our own wisdom, but that we would allow you to confront us at every turn. Please confront us, Father. Please reprove us. Please teach us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.